Good morning, welcome again. Uh, we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, it's towards the end of the Bible. This is the first of the four Gospels. Um, as you're turning there, I thought that you don't very often get two hymns on the same day that both have weird Hebrew words in them. Um, in case you didn't know what they meant, uh, we use the word Ebenezer and come now found that just means stone of help in the Bible. People would set up big stones to help them remember what God had done. Uh, and then uh, the Mighty Fortress song, we said Sabaoth. Sounds really cool. It means armies. When we say God is the Lord Sabaoth, God is the Lord of the armies. So in case you were totally confused by those words, hopefully you are less confused. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 13. I'll read through verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God to help us understand. Father, your word, your law is sweeter to us than honey. It is more valuable than all the gold in the world. Help us to see that today. Help us to hear in Jesus' teaching uh, what you have for us. Help us to see afresh the goodness of the life that you have called us and all humanity to in the kingdom of your beloved Son. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, many of you got the email I sent out on uh, Saturday morning, but we now, after over 20 years of meeting in schools, our church has just bought its first building. It's very exciting. We, we hope and we expect that owning our own building finally will bring many opportunities and blessings for us as a church in the years to come. Uh, and so a, a change like this is going to be a great opportunity for us to consider uh, and to revisit what it means to be a church, what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, we know that a physical building is not a silver bullet. There are many dead and dying churches around Austin that have their own buildings Churches that have drifted very far from the biblical mission and purpose, even with a facility there. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say today here in Matthew chapter 5, where just after blessing them in the Beatitudes, he reminds his disciples of what they, and by implication, what the church is supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to be doing as citizens of Jesus' kingdoms. I've just got two things for us to consider today from this passage, things for us to remember. 
uh, as our church goes into this new and exciting chapter of having our own facility. Uh, The first thing is there in verses 13 to 16, where Jesus helps us to understand what the mission of the church is. And then in verses 17 to 20, second, Jesus helps us to understand what the standard for the church is. Uh, To put it in other terms, first, Jesus is helping us to understand why are we here, and second, he's helping us to understand how do we do it. Last week, we saw Jesus beginning this famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, not with commands, not with telling his disciples what they should run out and go do, uh, but rather that he began it with blessings. And it's really significant that he starts that way. He begins with pronouncing and enacting God's blessings upon the kind of people who make up his kingdom. We saw that the first beatitude, being poor in spirit, was in many ways a summary of all of them. Uh, People who see and admit their moral and spiritual bankruptcy before God. Jesus says that you are blessed by God. You're exactly at home in my kingdom. We saw that one of the primary markers of Jesus' disciples is their weakness, their neediness, They're lowly, Jesus says. They hunger for righteousness. We also saw that their weakness spills over into service toward other people. Uh, Jesus said, you're blessed when you show mercy to the troubled, uh, when you maintain a life of purity of heart, when you make peace between other people. But we also saw there at the end of the Beatitudes that this life of Neediness, this life of service, often leads to opposition and attack. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And so now he's shifting from pronouncing blessings on his disciples now to declaring realities about them, from pronouncing blessings on them to declaring realities about them. In verses 13 to 16, he uses two related images to remind his disciples about who they are, about who he's made them to be. He says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. The two metaphors are making a similar point about the role of Jesus' disciples in the world, about what our mission is, about what we're here for. You see right away that the life and the blessings of the kingdom cannot ever be something that's merely private. It cannot ever be something that's merely individual. You see that in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question. You can't restore it. Jesus is declaring to his weak and needy disciples that they are the salt of the earth. He does not say that we are to become the salt of the earth but that he has already made us to be that. Salt was used for all kinds of things in the ancient world. It was used, of course, to flavor things. It was used as a preservative, as a disinfectant, as a fertilizer. Uh, It was even used as money. It's not entirely clear which of these Jesus is particularly thinking of, but you can see here in the verses that he talks about taste. And so that's probably the primary idea in view. Uh, But whatever the exact nuance that Jesus has in mind for the image of salt, the larger point uh, is that whatever you're using it for, salt is distinctive. Salt is distinctive. It makes a significant and noticeable impact on whatever you're using it for 
precisely because it is unlike what you're putting it on. I heard somebody say that a pile of salt one inch away from your food has absolutely no impact on your meal. It's useless. There's no point of just having it sitting right next to your plate. The whole point of salt is to apply it. In the land of brisket, we know how important it is to salt appropriately. <laughs> a few years ago, we went back to California to visit an old barbecue joint that's really famous there that we remembered really liking back in the day, and we were horrified, uh, having been spoiled by Texas brisket, that it tasted like nothing. It was really gross. <laughs> and so Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are the salt of the world's brisket. You have a positive, distinctive impact on the world around you. Now notice a couple of things about this. Uh, again, just in case you missed this, this is really important. Jesus just states it to be the case. And he, he makes it in a really emphatic way. Uh, in the Greek, there's an extra word here that makes it so that he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. He's really emphasizing the fact that you are this. He's not saying that being salty is for a special elite class of Christians. What he's saying is that just by existing in his kingdom, just by existing for his kingdom, Jesus' disciples already have a distinctive impact on the world around them. But notice also that Jesus is saying this to disciples whom he has just blessed, not in spite of their weaknesses and their failures, but whom he has blessed because of their weaknesses and their failures. He's blessed because of their poverty of spirit, because of their hunger for righteousness, because of their meekness, because of their peacemaking with other people. Jesus says, it's those kind of people, those are my disciples, they are the ones who are the salt of the earth. They're the ones who are having a distinct impact on what's happening around them. And we saw last week, yeah, Jesus said that sometimes... Uh, this impact means being hated. It means being ostracized. It's not very fun when that's the impact. But other times, the impact means really and truly changing the world around us for the better. Jesus' kingdom is distinct from the world's kingdoms, but in the long run, it often does change people and families and offices and businesses and communities. You see that all through the history of the church, which, of course, is filled with uh, many shameful stories of failure and weakness, but is also filled with amazing stories of, of new things happening in the world, revolutionary things happening in the world. The abolition of slavery, the rise of universities and hospitals and science, the improvement of the affairs of women and children, the channeling of male sexual energy into a loving marriage, a concern for individual rights. It's all come in large part from the impact of Christianity on the history of the world. Now, some of us uh, hear that Christians are to be having an impact on the world, that we're to be changing the world, and we get really stressed out because we, we look at ourselves, we look at our lives, and it all seems so little. It all seems so inefficient and so ineffective and so slow. But we need to remember who Jesus has just been blessing, the kinds of blessings he's been giving. Over the long run, Christians are salting the world through their simple and lowly lives of neediness. There are amazing stories in church history of these great heroes doing very brave things, having lots of impact. But for the vast majority of us, it's not going to look like that. But it doesn't mean that we're not the salt of the earth. It's the poor in spirit, 
Jesus says, the poor in spirit, who really are changing and impacting the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So there's a declaration there about something that's true about us, but there's also a warning here. There's a warning here. Jesus says that if salt becomes tasteless, what's the point? Because there's no point for it except to be thrown out. It's not distinct. It's not going to have any impact. So there's an encouragement here for weak Christians who might doubt that God could really be using them in the world. But there's also a warning for lazy Christians. There's a warning for those who just want to blend in with their neighbors and their colleagues and their families. Jesus says that you're of no use to his kingdom if you're just going to look like the world, if you're just going to act like the world, if you've got the same priorities and fears and habits. Uh, Jesus is going to go on in the rest of Matthew chapter 5 to talk about a, a, a distinctive way that his disciples approach anger, sex, marriage, money, conflict, all these things. Jesus says if you approach these things in the way that the world does, you're not really being salt. You're not really being a reflection of who I am. And so even though much of the point of these images is that uh, Jesus assumes and expects that his disciples are going to be out in the world, they're not supposed to be hiding from it, Jesus also assumes and expects that his disciples in that presence in the world will also be distinct from the world. We have a mission to be different from the world, but that mission to be different from the world is for the sake of the world. Does that make sense? That's the first image, salt. Look at the, look at the next one. It's related. Verse 14, uh, same emphatic statement. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Uh, we already saw uh, how important the image of light and darkness is for the Gospel of Matthew. We saw that in chapter 4. Uh, as Jesus was moving uh, into Galilee to begin his ministry. We heard there in chapter 4 that Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, about how God was going to send his life-giving light of his kingdom into the darkness of a world in the shadow of death. Jesus is the light of the world. And so it's amazing that Jesus now says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. It's his poor of spirit, meek, hungering for righteousness disciples, he says it's we who are the world's light. Now what an encouragement that should be for us today. Jesus draws us to himself and into himself, and in doing that, he makes us his representatives. He makes us his agents and his actors in the world. That's what the church is here for. That's why it's called the body of Christ. We represent Jesus to the world. We're not in ourselves the light of the world. It's Jesus in us who's the light of the world, but he's still using us to do it. And Jesus has a very lofty view of his disciples. He has a very lofty view of the church. Uh, God's great plan in between the first and second comings of Jesus is to enlighten the world, to save the world, to send out his people to love and nourish it in all of their weariness, in all of their uh, woundedness, all of the scars they're carrying from all of the things they're battling against, all of their beleagueredness. It's those people, Jesus says, 
are going to be his light in the world. He says that a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's impossible. It has to be visible. And so he says it's ridiculous to suppose that somebody would ever light a candle just to cover it back up with a bowl. It's so ridiculous, it's almost impossible to imagine someone ever doing that. And so part of Jesus' point is that a church or a group of disciples, a group of Christians who are invisible to the world around them, is such a ridiculous thing that it's almost impossible to consider. How could such a thing happen? And so Jesus moves from this second, second declaration now into an exhortation, into a call, into a challenge. He says, because you're my representatives on earth of the light that only I can give, he says, therefore, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, Jesus later on is going to warn us about the danger of putting on a show for other people so that they can notice us and think about how wonderful we are. But that's not quite his point yet. Right now, his point uh, is that um, people, his disciples are going to be in the world so that other people will see them. Jesus assumes, of course you're going to be seen. A church that is invisible to the surrounding world is failing in its mission. Sometimes being seen, Jesus already told us, sometimes being seen means being persecuted. But Jesus also promises that at other times being seen Maybe the same time, maybe in the midst of the persecution, being seen means that other people are going to come to believe in Jesus. Other people are going to see what's happening, and they're going to give glory to God. Our lives of obedience to Jesus have an enormous role to play in the mission that Jesus has given his church, his mission to go out and make disciples of all nations until he decides to come back. Sometimes I've heard Christians say something like this. I've thought this before. Well, I'll just live my life, and if uh, someone who's not a Christian is interested, they can just ask me about it. But otherwise, I'm just going to kind of keep my head down and not really say anything. Uh, In my life, when I've thought this, and I've wondered with other people that I've heard it from, uh, I think that attitude sometimes can actually come from a fear of talking about Jesus. It comes from an embarrassment about being a Christian, about some of the things that people don't like about Christians. It can be a kind of cop-out for putting your light under a basket. The good news of Jesus is a message. It has content. It has to be spoken eventually with words. Good deeds in and of themselves do not interpret themselves. They don't explain themselves. But at the same time, even though we do strongly believe that the good news of Jesus must be at some point spoken, At the same time, the good news of Jesus is often illustrated by, it's often reinforced by the distinctive way of the kingdom that Jesus is blessing in the Beatitudes. Uh, The rubber meets the road, so to speak, in our lives. Uh, Our our talk matches our walk. Christians should be, they don't always do this, it's hard in a culture where many, many people claim to be Christians but aren't actually that interested in following Jesus. But ideally, Christians should be showing in their families, in their workplaces, in their clubs, on walks with their neighbors, they should be showing that they're poor in spirit, that they hunger for righteousness, that they are peacemakers, that they're merciful. And so one question for you to ask today, if you are a Christian, is this. uh, Am I meaningfully and regularly involved in the lives of people around me who don't yet know Jesus? 
Jesus assumes that his disciples are going to be in the world, that people are going to see them. If I'm not meaningfully and regularly involved in the lives of people like that who don't yet know Jesus, what am I going to do to change it? Another question to consider, uh, maybe we have lots of people around us who uh, don't know Jesus and, and they see us and they see our lives. Perhaps for us, the question might become, is my life distinct from theirs? Is there something uh, meaningfully and substantially different about my life? Is, it, is my life marked by the kinds of things that Jesus has been blessing in the Beatitudes? Uh, but in either case, whether you maybe need to work on being more in the world uh, or maybe you need to work on not looking like the world, in either case, uh, we should all be praying, looking for opportunities to show and to tell people who Jesus is with our lives, with our words, with the way we love each other. So that's the mission of the church. Salt and light were distinct, but not merely distinct. We are supposed to be distinct in order to have a positive impact on those around us, most especially in the prayerful hope that through us they see God and they come to worship Jesus as his disciple. But how do you go about doing that? What tells us what this distinctive way of life looks like? What's our standard? That's the second point, verses 17 to 20. Jesus has just said, people are going to see your good works. They're going to see God in those things. Verses 17 to 20 tell us where you find those good works, where we find out what they are. Jesus is telling us here that his disciples must hold his lofty respect for the scriptures, which for him meant the Old Testament uh, which would soon be supplemented and clarified by what we now call the New Testament. The church has a mission to make disciples all over the world, but that mission must be subject to written Scripture. Written Scripture. Part of Jesus' point here is the emphasis on the fact that it is written down. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. We shouldn't think like lots of people have thought since Jesus came, that Jesus has overturned the Old Testament, that Jesus undermines the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, God was mad and grumpy, but now in the New Testament, God is nice and pleasant and accepting. God changed his mind. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. He says, I have not come to abolish, to uh, this is a word used for construction, like to, de to demolish something, to take it down. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, which is a way of describing the whole entire Old Testament. It's like saying from A to Z. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. He says, rather, I came to fulfill them. Uh, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, of course, means that many of the things it promised now have come true with Jesus. We've seen that a bunch of times in the Gospel of Matthew, like, oh, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Okay, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled a bunch of promises. But it means more than that. Uh, it also means uh, that Jesus fulfills it because he obeys it. He keeps all the rules. He keeps all the commands. There's a lot of them in the Old Testament. Jesus, Christians believe, is the only person who's ever perfectly kept God's law. But it doesn't just mean he fulfills it because some of the promises um, are about him and they've come true. It doesn't just mean that he fulfills it because he obeyed all of it. Uh, most deeply and most significantly, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, the primary meaning is that Jesus is what it's been pointing to 
all along. Jesus fulfills it because he's the whole point. He's what it's all about. Not just the promises about the future, although that's part of it. Not just the commands, although that's part of it. But also things like what seem to us to be very strange ceremonies, very strange rituals, holidays described in the Old Testament. Um, All of these stories, sometimes they're very gory. Sometimes they kind of horrify us with our modern sensibilities. Um, All of the, the rabbit trails in those stories, everything in it is all about Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. His message and his ministry are in perfect continuity with everything in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, don't you think that my disciples can now move beyond the Old Testament? He says in verse 18 that the Old Testament is so important, it is so permanent, he says that not even the littlest letter in the alphabet, not even uh, one little flick of the pen on one of those letters is going to lose its significance in pointing to me. He says that this is going to be the case until heaven and earth pass away, which is really a way, like we just heard in Jeremiah earlier, it's a way of saying it's never going to happen. Uh, The sun's going to keep coming up over and over and over again. The moon will be up there. Uh, It'll always be there. It's certain. It keeps going. Jesus says that the Old Testament will retain its significance forever, all the way up to the moment that Jesus comes back for a second time, all the way up to the moment that Jesus returns in glory to destroy and resurrect the universe. Every single word, every single phrase of the Old Testament scriptures will remain just as precious as ever, no matter what might happen before then. Uh, We might invent quantum computers. Uh, We might colonize the solar system. We might see the polar ice caps melt. Uh, Most of humanity might get wiped out in nuclear holocaust. Jesus says, whatever happens, uh, the Old Testament is still going to be precious all the way up till I come back. And so even with Jesus now coming, uh, even with all these wonderful, even these radical things that come about because Jesus has now come, because of his kingdom coming in the world, even so, Scripture remains paramount. As a church, we strive to have the same high view of Scripture that Jesus does here. We strive to constantly shape what we do down to our individual lives in light of it. Uh, We're not embarrassed by the Bible, not even by the Old Testament, not even by the parts that we don't uh, even really like that much or the parts that we wish weren't there. Uh, We're not embarrassed by it. We don't try to hide from it or run away from it. Uh, It's why so much of our ministry, so much of our relationships, so much of our worship services are about the Bible. It's why uh, all through the parts and themes and the stories of the Bible, uh, we teach all of it. We try to teach all of it, even the ones that we don't even understand or hard to wrap our heads around what they have to do with us. Jesus expects, even demands, that all of Scripture be taught rightly. Did you notice he keeps talking about, uh, he's concerned with how people teach the Old Testament. He says none of it is to be shrugged off, none of it is to be swept aside. He says whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's a way of saying they won't get into the kingdom of heaven. But he says whoever does them, whoever teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, We talked about this sometimes. I taught through uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus a couple years ago, and we talked about this. Uh, There are some things that are very different for Christians today than they were for Israelites living under the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament. Uh, Things like food, things like cleanliness, things like sacrifices. Uh, Some of these things have changed very dramatically. 
for Christians under the direction of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, And so part of what it means when we say that Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament is that these things don't apply in the same way that they used to apply to Israel, but they still apply. All of it still applies. And so because of that, all of it still needs to be taught. All of it still needs to be lived out, lived in light of. And so Jesus and we are profoundly concerned that the scriptures of the Old and now the New Testaments be taught appropriately, but not merely taught, also obeyed. Jesus says they have to be done. They have to be not just taught, but done. We live out our calling as salt and light in the world with scripture as our map and our guide for what that looks like. But then verse 20, Jesus does what he often does. He drops a hand grenade into your lap, blows aside Uh, your preconceptions of where you think he's going. You think, okay, I've got Jesus pinned down. No, you don't. Jesus wants to make sure we don't misunderstand. Verses 17 and 19, yes, they tell us, you have to cherish the Bible, the whole Bible. You have to teach it. You have to obey it. But then verse 20 makes a very different point. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes were the experts in Israel's scriptures. They were something like lawyers or professors. They were masters of all of scripture. The Pharisees were a a distinct but a related group of people. That was more of like a political movement, a societal movement. Uh, Their whole thing, and you could be a Pharisee, you could be a carpenter and be a Pharisee, you could be a scribe and be a Pharisee, you could be a rabbi and be a Pharisee. It was uh, kind of like how people say today, well, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or something like that. Their whole thing was all about applying God's word to all of life. Uh, They they had a very lofty view of scripture. Uh, They also had all kinds of detailed extrapolations from scripture to help regular people live it out in their day-to-day lives. There was nobody who was more righteous or more pious or more religious or more scrupulous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it's shocking. It's shocking that right after Jesus tells us, make sure you let Scripture rule over your whole life in everything, it's shocking that Jesus turns and says that these religious heroes won't be in the kingdom. I mean, this would have blown people away hearing Jesus say this. He says, you have to actually have a greater righteousness than they do. And in a way, it can be kind of shocking. It can be really discouraging to hear something like that. In a quantitative sense, there is nobody who had a greater righteousness than these guys. If they can't enter the kingdom, then nobody can. No one did as much as they did. No one was as heroic as they were. No one was as generous as they were. But I think Jesus' point here is not about quantity of righteousness, but about quality of righteousness. What kind of righteousness do you have? Jesus has already told us in the Beatitudes that his kingdom, which is a kingdom anticipated and foreshadowed all through the Old Testament, that Jesus' kingdom is one marked by weakness, by poverty of spirit, by neediness, by hungering for righteousness, which of course implies that you don't yet have righteousness. Jesus is saying that you have to have that kind of righteousness to enter 
his kingdom. If you try to do things like the Pharisees did, like lots of people today are doing, meticulous, rule-keeping, heroic efforts of philanthropy and willpower, constantly erring on the side of caution, looking to impress everybody around you, Jesus will say to you, you have totally missed the boat. You don't get it. The Pharisees were not poor of spirit. The Pharisees did not hunger for righteousness. They thought they had arrived. They thought that God owed them. They thought that God chose them because he knew how pious they would be, how helpful they would be for his purposes. That's what they thought about themselves, even as they often used the language of mercy and forgiveness and grace. And so Jesus, as he's going to keep doing all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus right away drives us back into the Beatitudes. He says, we need to be a poor of spirit kind of people. We are bankrupt before God. We cannot even begin to earn his love and his favor. But Jesus is also saying to us that it's in this poverty of spirit that you actually really are impacting the world around you. You really are being salt and light to the extent that you recognize that you live entirely based on God's mercy, not based on anything about you. It's that kind of righteousness shaped by Scripture, living under Scripture, that's really changing the world. And so our mission, like all churches' mission is supposed to be, our mission is to make disciples in the world, to be distinct from the world for the sake of the world. And Scripture, even the Old Testament, as embarrassed as we might be by it today in our modern world, Scripture tells us what that looks like. But we never, ever, ever escape this poverty of spirit. You never graduate beyond being needy before God. And so Jesus says again, it's only those who know how much they lack who will receive the blessing of his kingdom in the end. And so for us as a church, as we start moving into our own building, we need to be reminded, we need to strive harder again. Uh, we need to depend on God's grace so that we'll be a church who's joyfully dependent upon him, a church that joyfully submits to his written word. It's only to the extent that we're doing those things that we'll be able to fruitfully carry out the mission that Jesus has given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that is so far beyond not only what we need, but even what we could imagine and guess at what we need. We are so thankful that your grace is so beyond everything that we are and lack. Help us to never forget that. Help us to not become a people who think that we have to run on the treadmill of keeping rules in order to get you to like us. But help us to see that in Jesus, we've already received all the love that we'll ever need. You can't give us anything more than you've already given us in Jesus. Help us to see that. And in that satisfaction, in that contentment, help us to be a people who really are living distinctly from the ways that we used to live, from the ways of the people around us, so that we might love them and show them who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.